The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the... This is too goddamn early to be up. Damn the Gurr Underwood. Hi, everybody. Like, I actually got sleep last night, so now I'm just all, I'm all groggy and shit. Yeah, you're kind of bitchy this morning. I am bitchy this morning. I tell you what, I would kick, I would, I'd kick babies this morning. That's, that's just how I feel. Well, I just, you know, right now I would, too. I've been up since one, so I don't want to hear it. Oh, freaking A, man. I'm just, I'm so... And every time I tried to turn over and go to sleep, I just couldn't. Were there, like, branches in your way or something? No, I just couldn't get comfortable. Uh, I just figured there's branches and leaves. you got to talk more into your mic. Get up I on that thing. I am talking into my mic. I'm trying to keep it down because your son's in bed. Well, I told him to go to bed early. If he didn't, that's his own fucking fault. Yeah, well, you know. Whatever. <clears throat> yeah, hey, I told him, and he, he made the choice. So I'm not I'm not altering what we're doing just to, you know, fucking cater to him. <laughs> we don't control what we do. No, I, you know, I, I, I warned him, and he knows. So psh, there you go. <laughs> so I have no shits to give this morning. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Scott, how many shits you got over there? Men? Men? I have no shits over here, and if you look outside, you'll see my field of fucks. <laughs> Notice that it's barren. It is very <laughs> empty. There's, like, barely any dirt. I can't even right now. I used to have a basket of fucks, and now I have none. <laughs> you used to have a bushel of fucks. Yeah, no, not, I not, none. I have none. <laughs> okay. Now, this is part two of Sharon Kine. Remember, she's the one that um, said her two-year-old daughter killed her husband? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to refresh everybody's memory. Went on murder, uh, went on trial for murdering her lover's wife, but was acquitted. <clears throat> you know, and then the jury member got her autograph, because that's what we do. <laughs> Even back then. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I was looking at a picture of her when I was... Uh posting all this shit oh right? yeah 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 she's actually really she's very good looking yeah for, for she looks like a, a movie star of the time mm-hmm. you know like yeah. you, would, you would expect to see a her femme on, fatale from the 60s yeah she, she'd be in, in some like you know noir movie some detective mm-hmm. noir movie something like that yeah very very attractive woman so now i can i can kind of see why every guy wanted to bang her yeah kind of yeah so now that Sharon had sat through the trial and was ultimately acquitted of one murder charge, she had one more murder trial to go, the death of her husband, James Kine. Now, jury selection for her second trial started on January 8, 1962. And from the beginning, Hill, the prosecutor, stated that should the jury find her guilty for murdering her husband, he was not going to argue for the death penalty. And I believe he made that clear so that the jury wouldn't be afraid to convict her. Okay. You know what I mean? Because yeah, I think sense. if they looked at her, it's like, oh, we don't want to put her to death. She's too innocent looking. You know, kind of like you say about certain people. Uh, I'll tell you, because with her, you know, a, a, a white girl's a terrible thing to waste. And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you just don't want to throw them in, you don't want to throw them in the garbage or anything. Yeah, that's it. Right she looks there. like she's reusable. You're so dumb. For this trial, the bulk of the process. Cushion's case relied on their argument that Sharon wandered her husband out of the picture so much that she was willing to hire someone to murder him. 
And this argument rested heavily on the testimony that John Boldes gave to the grand jury, which resulted in the formal charges. However, when they called him to the stand, he diminished his credibility. He told the court that when Sharon offered to pay him $1,000 to murder her husband, he thought it was a joke. And from that point forward, D.A. Hill had to prove his own witness's credibility. Yeah. Get going, D.A. Get yeah. going. Good that's, job. That, that's some good freaking lawyering right there. Yeah, exactly. So after that, Hill tried to call witnesses to the stand that would testify to the fact that James was seeking a divorce and that his motivation for such actions was due to her blatant adultery, that Sharon had somehow become aware of his intentions and would have been more pro- and it would have been more profitable for her to dispose of her husband than let him file for divorce, especially since his life insurance policy p- would pay out approximately $29,000, but it would only pay out that much if she were still married to him at the time of his death. Now, for this case, Martha Sperry Hickman was joined by James Patrick Quinn. That sounds like a good Irish name to defend Sharon Kine in another murder charge. They focused the bulk of their defense on the pure circumstantial evidence of the prosecution's case. Now, remember, they're the ones that they didn't get handprints from the gun because the grip of it was too oily. Yeah, which to this day still makes no sense to me. (laughs) You know, like I said a million times, I oil my guns after I go shooting. I just don't oil the frigging grips because nobody does that. Like, you know who does that? (laughs) Fucking nobody. (laughs) Not even terrorists. Not not even even terrorists look at that and go, no. (laughs) Yeah. Their first point of argument was the fact that detectives in independence had initially ruled James' cause of death as accidental homicide. Hickman and Quinn's opening argument reinforced that the jury was obligated by law to assume that she was that Sharon was innocent until the prosecution successively proved her guilty. In other words, it didn't matter how unpleasant they found her to be as an individual or how bad her moral character appeared to be. At the end, she was to be considered innocent until the prosecution could prove otherwise beyond a reasonable doubt. Just like me. I'm sweet and innocent. And I have proven that beyond a reasonable doubt is false. No, I am. I'm like, I'm like an angel. <laughs> okay. St. Scottius. That's my new name. With Saint the horns Scottius. holding up the halo. Oh, so to me. Hey, I have that tattoo, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I have the little red devil with the halo. Um, on that same note, Hickman and Quinn attacked John's credibility. They called, quote, a poor mixed up kid who would say, say and sign anything when it came to his own possible defense. To support their case, they called witnesses to the stand that testified that the prospect of Dana shooting her own father with his own gun was a viable and believable possibility. Those testimonies focused on two aspects. James himself left his guns out in the open where she could easily access them. Dana was able to, under supervision of law enforcement, pull the trigger of weapons with a stiffer trigger pull than that of the weapon that killed James. And Dana was witnessed on multiple occasions to pretend shooting guns while playing. Didn't we all back then? Uh, You know, uh, we played cops and robbers so many times. That's why you went to prison. And cowboys and Indians. And I know I'm not supposed to say that anymore, but yeah. Are we talking dot or feather Indian? (laughs) I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> the dots own quickie marts and uh, the I know. feathers live on reservations that have casinos. Thank you. Thank they shoot you. arrows. Thank you. And you I know. appreciate the 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 mansplaining over there. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, mansplaining means man explaining. 
My son asked me the other day, he goes, are you trying to mansplain me? I said, first of all, not a man. <laughs> and second of all, no. <laughs> Sir, you need to calm down. <laughs> so after this trial was over, the press had the opportunity to, oh, wait. Oh, I went too far. Sorry. Yeah, that's what she told me. Then it was like, oh, I'm pregnant. And uh, you're I know, the I dad. Went too far. I, I'm like, I skipped uh, a whole section. <laughs> then I'm like, no habla inglés. <laughs> On July 11, 1961, the jury deliberated for approximately five and a half hours. In the end, they determined that Sharon Kine was guilty of murdering her husband. The sentencing phase of Sharon's trial took place in April of that same year, and that's when she was formally sentenced to serve life in prison by the judge. After receiving her sentence, she was transferred to the Missouri Reformatory for women to carry out her sentence. Now, wait, it gets better. Where did I... Okay. The hell are you doing over there? I, well, I got lost for a minute. I'm sorry. After this... How can you get lost? <laughs> I don't know. The two desks aren't that far apart. No. And you don't have a whole lot of working area. No, I got lost on my sheet. Leave me alone. <laughs> I don't give a sheet. <laughs> I hate you. You sheet I, me not? After this trial was over, um, the press had the opportunity to interview several... Members of the jury. Those interviews painted a picture of what transpired behind the scenes during the jury deliberation. According to reports, the jury conducted multiple, at least three or four ballots to determine whether or not she was guilty of murdering her husband before they all settled on guilty. The first ballot determined that the jury was equally divided when it came to her guilt. However, after discussions were held and more ballots were held, the jury steadily progressed forward until they reached a unanimous guilty verdict. One of the jurors that was interviewed by the Kansas City Star stated that in the long run, Sharon's morals weren't even a factor in their decision. In fact, it was her opinion that none of the jurors on the panel had knowledge of Sharon's previous murder charges for the death of Patricia Jones. Now, contrary to public opinion, and despite the guilty verdict, James' family maintained their faith in their daughter-in-law's innocence. In fact, on the day the jury found Sharon guilty of murdering James, his family gave multiple statements to the media, which included phrases like, we can't find it in our hearts to say anything bad about her, and we still don't feel that she committed murder. When she addressed the media, she emphasized the fact that she felt the jury made a mistake in issuing a guilty verdict. She also stated that the only regret she had at the time was the fact that she was enthusiastic to have a female on the jury panel for her second murder trial. The week after the jury rendered their verdict, her defense attorneys petitioned the courts for her to be released on bail. They, most, they based their motion on the argument that 132 people in the community had signed a petition on behalf of her innocence. The motion was denied by the courts, and the final decision was based on the fact that in the state of Missouri, first-degree murder is not an offense that generally warrants bail to be set. It never does, and even yeah. to this day, it's not, you know. If, I know. If you're, if you're uh, charged with a capital crime... Even if you're charged yeah. with felony murder here in Oregon, you can't get bail. Yeah. No, the, the, the judge never says uh, bail amount is this much. No. It's like, no, no you're not going anywhere. Bail, <laughs> bail denied. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to sit your butt in the box, and you're just going gonna to shut the hell up until eventually we get to you. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Now, now the presiding judge on the case, Tom J. Stubbs, that is such a Southern name. Also, no, why do you make fun of all the Southern people? Why? I, I, I'm not making fun of them. Just said it was a Southern name. Besides, Missouri is the uh, more of the Midwest than the South. That's true. Missouri is. Yeah, Misery. Missouri. <laughs> Misery is. 
also addressed the defense to let them know how he personally felt about the position. Sub was of the opinion that it was, quote, highly improper for the defense attorneys to petition the courts for bond when the charges weren't eligible for such a request in the first place. Now, when that, it's like, you wasted our time. When that petition was denied, the defense filed another motion. This time they petitioned for the guilty verdict to be vacated completely because it was solely based on surmise and speculation, when it should have been based on substantial evidence. To support their motion, the defense attorneys listed multiple procedural errors that they felt occurred not only before the trial began, but while it was taking place. You know what I use to support my motion? What? A sex swing. Lube? <laughs> <laughs> no, that just makes it more slidey. <laughs> Never that's, use that's like oiling the grip of your gun. No, <laughs> exactly. You don't want to slide off of that thing, man. You'll, you know, you're you're suspended. You'll you'll break your head open, and that's an odd visit to the ER. I've never Very. been in a sex swing, but oh, neither have I. I mean, I've just heard from a friend. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> so I've heard. Hypothetically speaking, now during the trial, at least one of the jurors on the panel quote took incomplete notes, which I don't see how that is relevant. It's not. It's not relevant. So yeah. just aren't good note takers. Yeah, and then John Bolt's testimony was questionable at best, which I kind of agree with. And the courts didn't provide them with an acceptable number of potential jurors when jury section began. In other words. They had to work with a pool that was provided, and it wasn't as adequate as other pools in similar cases. Now, I will say this. When I was up for federal jury duty, we had over 150 people for a 12-man jury with three alternates. That's exactly why they do it, though. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, so so think about this, okay? Out of that 100-plus people, I'm going to say probably 75 of them do not want to be there. True, I did. (laughs) Why do you want a juror to be sitting in that box that doesn't want to be there? Correct. Because you think they're going to pay attention to that case? No, not at all. They're going to be bored. Like when I when I got my jury summons and what have not. Actually, I didn't. I I responded. I said I didn't get your first message, your first thing in the mail. They said, "Okay, well then your jury service will start January, whatever it was." And I just I ignored it. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. You you wonder why? Because I have. Okay, they're going to pay me fifty bucks a day. Okay, to sit there. I make yeah. a substantially amount more larger amount than that per day. At the end of the day, I got to pay my damn bills. Correct. Okay, I've got bills. Are is 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 the court's going to pay my bills? No, no. Especially if I'm sitting on a damn jury. Like like Dawn when she went, had to go to, to to jury duty, right? She was there for what, like like a month? Yeah. You know? Exactly, and that's a federal jury. I mean, because the the one that I was up for the Gypsy Joker trial, I think lasted for four months. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That would have been awesome trial, though. Not if I had to sit on it. That's four bucks. That's four months at what, like fifty bucks a day, or let's even say a hundred dollars a day. Yeah, it goes up. And well, and I know federal court goes up. At, it's like fifty dollars a day for the first like week. Or something like that, and then after that, it goes up to like seventy five, a hundred bucks a day, something. Get like the stupid. I, I got and then gas back and forth. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ! I've got like a freaking huge ass truck payment. I've got the utilities for this place. Um, yeah. I got food because I have a you know I have a monster that lives in the back room. Yeah, fifty dollars a day doesn't even feed you your son for a day. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like if Sally Struthers was looking at him <laughs> and doing a commercial. If you don't know who Sally Struthers is, just look her up. Time to. Freaking explain her. She'd be like, for just a simple $5,000 a day, you could feed. You could feed the intern. The intern. <laughs> Scott's son. No, so. actually, he's, he's doing a lot better. He's, he's lost some weight. He's, he's lost a lot of weight. And I shouldn't talk because I'm a fat dude, too. But, 
Yeah. So he is trying, which is which is awesome. And as much as I make fun of him, I got to give him some props. He does bust his ass. Like last night, um, and then we'll get back on track. Um, it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm going to bed because normally I'm in bed by 7. But I, I know. Early I bird special. Um, because of everything that's happening this coming week, starting right. today. Right. Um, I had just a, a ton of stuff to do. And it has nothing to do with Brutal Nation, Boys and Girls. It has to do with my band, Twisted Blue. We just released an album. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, and uh, so I'm, I, I go and I'm laying down in bed. He knocks on the door. And I go, yeah, buddy. And he goes, hey, I thought you wanted to get some like cookies and milk. I said, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go to bed. And he looked down. He saw my water glass was half empty or mo- almost empty. He goes, oh, let me go refill this for you, man. Because if it gets any more empty, you're gonna, you know, it's going to be a desert. And I know that you drink water like in the middle of the night. Yeah. Now, wow, that's pretty kick-ass, man. Wow. I make, I, I make fun of Jake a lot. but he's, he's He actually, is very helpful. He's, he's always he's, like. Do you need anything awesome to drink? Kid, Do you need this? Do you need that? When we're when I'm over here, yeah, so. yeah, he's he's and, and he's got a good sense of humor, and mm-hmm. uh, which for the is, most part, well, that's my saving grace right there with the whole freaking hummus incident. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mister, jump uh, to conclusions. I uh, I love my kids, man. They're they're, they're pretty okay. And Jake Jake is a pretty okay. He's pretty he's pretty all right. <laughs> so, anyways. Judge Stubbs denied their second motion in April 1962. However, they quickly filed an appeal with the Missouri Supreme Court. And in March of 1963, the Supreme Court of Missouri reversed her original conviction. The Supreme Court based their decision on the fact that they felt Sharon's attorneys weren't granted their allotted preemptory challenges during the jury selection process. So according to American and Australian judicial rights, this law grants attorneys in a criminal case to reject and or dismiss a certain number of potential jurors without cause. Outside of preemptory challenge, an attorney can only challenge a potential juror on cause. For instance, they have to challenge whether or not they feel the juror can reach a fair verdict given their background and personal history. The preemptory challenge gives both prosecution and defense attorneys to the ability to veto or dismiss a pot- potential juror only on their hunch. Okay? So even though the Missouri Supreme Court reversed Sharon's original conviction in May 1963, they did still denied her any opportunity for bail. However, in July of that same year, that ruling was overturned, and Sharon was finally granted bail at $25,000, and her brother, Eugene, posted it. No, that's, okay, hold on, hold, hold up. Let me get this right. She just got convicted... Of murder. Of murder, and they're going to give her bail. Yes, because the verdict was overturned. Oh, they were, okay, uh, I'm understanding now. That yeah, the verdict was that. overturned, so they ordered a new trial and didn't, they, they denied her bail at the time, but then they took it further and, you know, that okay. ruling was overturned. Okay, so, I expect, I'm sorry, my, boys and girls, my brain's just not with it yet. It'll be way better when we get to the next episode. It's just right now, I'm down in some coffee, getting ready to go get another pack of cigarettes, yes, and as I always say, yes, I smoke, mind your own goddamn business. Mind your business. Mind your business. Be kicking some butt. I will come out to Florida and kick some butt. <laughs> <laughs> All the way out there. No, oh, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because uh, one of our fans, Jen Dahl, uh, her and I, her and I chat quite a bit, right? Mm-hmm. But then I got a new person to chat with in Florida. Yeah, and her name is Katie, and I can't remember her. Is that Jen's friend? Yeah, that just just was hooked onto our because Jen was telling me how she hooked her friend up with our podcast and she's like binging it too. Yeah, I said yeah. 
So, so I thought that was, that was pretty cool, too. So, yeah, that's, that's why I said that. I will come all the way out to Florida. I got a size 13 foot. I'll, 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 I'll kick some butt. I know that's a lie. Your foot's smaller than mine. No. <laughs> you're, you wear a size 17. I wear a 14 in Nike, 11 in any other brand. We've been through this. Whatever you want to tell the fans, because... <laughs> I've, I know I've, what I, my foot size is, Scott. I've seen your feet. If if your, your shoes are so big, I could if they were the remember those wheelies when we were kids where you could like they had the wheel in the back. It was like a skate that you They're wore. They're heelys, yes. Heelys. If they were, if you got a pair of those, I could roll my truck on top of them <laughs> and tow it anywhere. I could never wear heelys. I don't have the balance for them. That's because you have a size seventeen foot. I can never ride a skateboard either, but that's that's neither here nor there. I saw you put on a pair of clown shoes and they fit. <laughs> Shut up. You are lying. You were walking down the street. Honk, 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 honk. Well, I honk. told you what one of the officers when I was in down in Salem said to me, right? She goes, because I had to trade in my old shoes because my, you know, that's before I made it to the CRCR where we had shoes shipped in. Um, <laughs> and so I had to trade in a pair of my old, they look like Chuck Taylors, like generic Chuck Taylors. Anyways, and I went to go to her and she goes, oh, we can't recycle these. I go, why not? She goes, because somebody in Cuba might get them. I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> that is facts right there. <laughs> that is freaking facts. I tell you, you're, but the good thing about your shoes is they make a great uh, weapon. Like if anybody ever <laughs> broke into like uh, the, the, the studio or, or here or anything like that, if I can manage to pick those up without <laughs> cracking my back and breaking it and, and get it to, if I had five people to help me lift your shoe. <laughs> and throw it. I'm pretty sure that once that brick hit hit them, that's gonna be then that's all she wrote. <laughs> they're, they're no longer a burglar or, or a person who's trying to break in or nothing like that. Now they're just a missing person. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Anyways, so after the Supreme Court ordered for Sharon to be granted bond, the district attorney requested that the Supreme Court of Missouri take a second look at their decision on overturning her conviction. And their request was ultimately granted. However, in October of 1963, that decision prompted to the Supreme Court to order a new trial. Ultimately, a new trial because during the original trial, the prosecution was allowed to, quote, cross-examine one of their own witnesses. While Sharon awaited the start of her new trial for the murder of her husband, James, her husband, James, she was granted bail. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Because I'm confused. Uh Uh-huh. If you call a witness, aren't you allowed to um, question them? You're allowed to question them, but I believe what this was in, insinuating was that they treated their witness like a hostile witness without getting that permission first. Uh, okay. That's, yeah. T- okay, t- to me that's stupid. And let me explain why. Because of, yeah. of what I call, what's called the human condition. Right. So let's say that I'm the attorney and you're my witness, right? And mm-hmm. we're talking, we're like, okay, uh, so that's your story with Bob over here. You be my witness, and you're like, "Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do." And then you get on the stand, and everything's cordial right now. But you get on the stand, and all of a sudden you're hostile, or your story changes. Or your story changes. Am I supposed to stop court and go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 backtrack there, butthole"? <laughs> that is not what you said. That's not what you were telling me. No, you continue on. We go, okay. You know what? Let's make yeah. it, let's make the best the best the best of a bad situation, and get through right. this shit. See, because I think according to law, and don't quote me on this because I haven't actually researched this part of it, and I usually do beforehand, but I believe that according to law, when either the prosecution or the defense calls one of their own witnesses, they cannot, like, treat them hostily without the court's permission because it's their witness. 
That's stupid. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, get. I think that's how it goes. But like I said, don't quote me. You know. Jesus Christ. I only played an attorney in treatment. I never was one. I only play an attorney in the bedroom. <laughs> but that's with, you know, certain clients. <laughs> I told you you were a hooker. <laughs> Bring her in. It's time for her to take some dictation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways. So. Want to see my legal briefs? Shut up. So while Sharon awaited the start of her new trial for the murder of her husband, James, she was granted bail. Since she didn't really have anywhere else to go, she and her children moved in with her mother until they knew what their future held. Now, now she's going to trial for the second time, right? Trial for death of James Kind Part Dos. Sharon Kind's second trial for the murder of her former husband, James, commenced on March 23, 1964. Initially, during the jury selection process, the court restricted the media from having access to the proceedings. However, that ban was short-lived, and it wasn't long before the press was granted access to sit in the ga- gallery during the trial. They were hard-pressed. They were hard-pressed. <laughs> when it came to selecting the jury... The process took longer than usual. It began around 9 a.m. and it lasted for 14 hours, ending close to midnight. Jesus Paul Christ, Carver, man. the judge presiding over the trial, said that since it was such a high-profile case, he was forced to make a decision between two choices. Sequester the entire jury pool until the jury selection was complete or prolong the proceedings until it was complete, which he chose to prolong. Um, however, once the jury of all men were selected, he ordered them to be sequestered. You want to know why it was all men? Because a man is always right. You remember that. Hear the silence? Because <laughs> I don't want to murder you. <laughs> Unfortunately, a couple days later, it was apparent that the entire prolonging and sequestering process was a wasted effort. That's because the for- the court was actually forced to declare a mistrial. The basis of that decision was due to the fact that one of the jurors had at one time in the past retained a partner in the prosecutor's office for a court battle of his own. Therefore, it was decided that this retention was a true conflict of interest in the trial for Sharon Kine. And since Lawrence Gepford, the prosecutor on the case, was compromised, a third trial was ordered. Now, the third trial for the death of James Kine was supposed to start at the beginning of June. However, after delays, it didn't begin until June 29th. Um, Donald L. Mason, the assistant prosecutor on the case, made it clear from the beginning of the jury selection process that he did fully intend to go for the death penalty this time. That is a judicial process where a prosecutor is allowed to preemptorily challenge a potential jury juror if they are in opposition of the death penalty. For that reason, it took more than 12 hours to select a jury again. Yeah, and that process is actually called death qualify. So, oh, I know some people that are death qualified. Oh, me too, but too bad nobody, like, you know. I know. People should listen to me. That's I'm talking about that, too. Yes. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> so after the jury selection was complete, it was time for the witness testimonies. Now, John Boldis took the stand again, and his testimony was nearly as contradictory as it was the first time. He again testified that he didn't know whether or not Sharon was serious when she offered to pay him $1,000 to murder James. However, this time he added that she did ask him not to tell law enforcement officials that she had ever made the offer to begin with. Ooh, ouch. After that, the prosecution called a new witness to stand. This witness happened to be a female acquaintance of Sharon's. She told the court that she had once made a joke that, quote, a woman should get rid of her old man like Sharon did. 
<laughs> yeah. That's, that's messed up. Yeah. However, upon cross-examination, Sharon's attorney was able to point out this witness was offering testimony that was inconsistent with the one she gave during her earlier deposition. The highlight of this trial was when Sharon actually took the stand in her own defense. This was the first time in any of the trials that she personally went on the record to deny all of the charges against her. After both sides delivered their closing arguments, the jury broke for deliberation. Now, I wasn't able to determine how long it was, but the entire jury consisted of 12 men, and when they returned the verdict, they were all deadlocked. Seven members of the jury felt that she was not guilty of murdering her husband, but the other five said she was. In the end, they weren't able to make a unanimous decision, which resulted in what? Oh, yeah, another mistrial. So, um, now, after that, with the jury deadlocking, deadlock resulting in a mistrial, the court ordered a fourth trial for the death of James Kine. This was scheduled to begin in October 1964. However, that trial never took place. In September of 1964, while Sharon was out on a $25,000 bond, she and her lover, Francis Samuel, I'm going to mess up this name. I think it's Puglies, P-U-G-L-I-E-S-E. What's his sister named Wednesday? <laughs> I didn't say Pugsley. Close enough. Puglies, Puglies, something I like that. I bet she was a Pugly guy. Probably. They took a trip to Mexico. <laughs> she traveled under the name Jeanette, whatever the heck that last name is, claiming that she was his wife. They both later stated that they had traveled to Mexico so that they could get married. According to the terms of Sharon's bond, she was legally allowed to leave the country. However, the contract she signed with the bail bonds company stated that if she traveled outside of Missouri, she had to have written permission from an agent within the company. And that did not happen. Now, when Sharon and Francis arrived in Mexico, they checked into the Hotel Gin as a married couple. Yes, Hotel Gin. Although the two of them went to Mexico. Hold up, hold up. Can you get me reservations at the Hotel Vodka? (laughs) I know, right? Just asking for a friend. (laughs) The Hotel Vale Vodka? (laughs) That's right. I'll take the double espresso uh, caramel room. Oh, I found another brand that has caramel vodka. Yeah. What is it? Um, it's, It's a weird one. It's a weird, it's something Oski or something like that. I'll have to look. Cool. Yeah, but I haven't been able to find another espresso one, so. Now, although the two of them went to Mexico with at least one, if not two, firearms with them, Sharon said that she didn't feel safe being in a foreign country. So to remedy that situation, she went out and purchased another one. According to reports, Sharon left the hotel on September 18, 1964, without Francis. However, this is where those reports differ. Some say that she and Francis were running low on finances, so she went out to find a way to get more money. Other reports said that she had to get more of her required medications. Either way, while she was out, she went to a local bar where she met Francisco Parades Odonez. Or, yeah. He was an American citizen originally from Mexico on vacation. At some point, the two of them left the bar and went to Hotel Lavada, where Francisco had a room. Sharon later told the authorities that she had only gone back to his hotel room to see some photographs he thought she might be interested in. However, once they were in the room, he, he, she says he began to make unwanted sexual advances with her. And when she twi- tried to thwart them, he became aggressive and she shot him in an effort to protect herself. A lot of shooting people going on with a lot of excuses. With her, yes. Yeah. Sharon said that she only pulled out her pistol because she wanted to scare him. 
She maintained that she never had any intention of hurting him. However, she did fire the weapon, shooting him in the chest and killing him. However, there's a question of whether or not Sharon's actions were really an act of self-defense or she had murderous intentions. Because an employee of the hotel, Enrique Martinez Rueda, heard the sound of the gunshots, went to the room to see what was going on. And when he entered, Sharon shot him and struck him in the shoulder. Although Enrique was murdered, I mean wounded, excuse me, not murdered, he managed to exit the room and barricade Sharon inside. After that, he contacted the local authorities to report the incident. You know, the federales. You know, she sounds like she should be with Billy the Kid in an old Western movie. Well, you know what? I was thinking that same thing because her nickname in Mexico was La Pistolera, Pistolaria or something like that. Yeah, you know. Pistolaria. Yeah, that's it. I, I can't gotcha. roll my R's, so leave me alone. You're rude. <laughs> no, I'm Scott, and I'm starting to wake up. Now y'all are screwed. <laughs> no, I'm screwed. <laughs> now the Mexican only when you're on Sandy Boulevard. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> now the Mexican authorities didn't believe Sharon that Sharon had shot Francesco in self-defense. In fact, they posed this theory: Sharon had left her hotel room that night with the intent of robbing someone. At some point, she singled out Francisco as her victim. Once she had him alone. She ordered him to give her money. According to this theory, he refused her demands, which caused her to shoot him. Now, when local law enforcement responded to Hotel Lavada, they placed Sharon under arrest and charged her with murder and assault with a deadly weapon. During the interrogation, she maintained her story that she had never had any intention to harm Sam- harm Francisco. I was going to call him San Francisco for some reason. The San Francisco treat. Yeah. When asked why she fired her weapon at Enrique, she stated that she was afraid that he had entered the room intending to assault her as well. However, when the authorities confiscated Sharon's belongings and searched her purse, they not only found her pistol, but approximately 50 cartridges. Then, when they searched the hotel room she shared with Francisco at Hotel Gin, they discovered two more weapons and a cache of ammunition. Now, when the Mexican authorities went to search Sharon at Francis... Sharon and Francis's room at the Hotel Gin, they placed him under arrest as well. Initially, he was being held without charge. However, he was later charged with illegally entering the country in possession of an unregistered firearm. When law enforcement officials searched the hotel room, they found a link to the 1960 murder of Patricia Jones. One of the guns that Sharon and Francis had in their possession was a ballistic match to the 22 caliber pistol that killed Patricia. However, due to the law of double jeopardy, since Sharon had already been acquitted of that murder in the trial, there was nothing the authorities could do about that. Now, after Francis was arrested, he was housed in Mexico City's Palacio I can't even, De La Cumberi. I, I can't roll my R, so don't even get on me about that. Does it say La Cumberi? L-E-C-U-M-B-E-R-R-I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. La Cumberi. Yeah, there you go. To await the trial. Sharon was housed in a women's penitentiary and transferred to that place right before her trial began. Now, the Mexican courts arraigned Sharon and Francis on September 26, 1964. At that point, it was decided they would both be held over for trial. In October that same year, <laughs> this I, these names, Higinio, H-I-G-I-N-I-O, Lara, Sharon's attorney in Mexico, filed a recurso de amparo with the court. That is a Mexican, Mexican equivalent of a writ of habeas corpus. And according to Lara's motion, the Mexican government was violating Sharon's constitutional rights by holding her in custody for shooting a man in self-defense. The courts denied the motion, and the couple went on trial this summer of 1965. 
Now, Francis and Sharon were tried separately, and each had a different outcome of their trial. In Francis's case, he was acquitted of the charges against him. The only repercussions were that he was deported back to Mar- to the United States. <laughs> kind of odd, huh? <laughs> you never it's hear of it going the opposite direction. No kid. Nobody's ever in Mexico, and they're like, Senor, get on the bus. We are taking you back to America. We're deporting you. We're deporting you. Wrong accent, but y'all get it. <laughs> so in contrast, on October 18th, Sharon was found guilty of murdering Francisco. At the time, news reports speculated that she would just be sentenced with probation and deported back to the United States. Instead, the judge gave her 10 years in a Mexican prison. Now, Sharon received her official sentence on October 19th. At that time, she formally stated her intent to appeal. Unfortunately, it didn't go the way she hoped. The three-judge panel of the Superior Court of Mexico that heard her appeal made a shocking decision. Although they overturned Sharon's attempted robbery charge, they ruled to uphold her murder conviction. Not only that, they also ruled to increase her prison sentence from 10 to 13 years. They stated that they felt the judge who originally sentenced her was too lenient. Now, after the Supreme Court made their decision, Sharon was transferred back to the women's penitentiary so that she could carry out her sentence. While she was at the facility, she was given the new moniker, La Pistolera, which translates to the gunfighter. Um, Female gunfighter, by the way. She's a female gunfighter, senora. Yeah. She goes out to the dusty streets of Mexico to gun down the men. (laughs) Anyways, the Mexican media officially adopted this nickname for her from that (coughs) point forward. Now, when guards at the, I can't, it's the Extapa something, it's a prison there, where where Sharon was being held, conducted their routine inmate count at approximately 5 o'clock, 5 p.m. on December 7th, that year, 1969. (laughs) I always hate it. 69, yeah. She wasn't accounted for. However, no alarm was raised at that time. In fact, they didn't officially note her absence until they couldn't account for her at another routine headcount later that same evening. The prison didn't even alert the authorities in Mexico City that Sharon had escaped custody until 2 a.m. the following morning. At that time, law enforcement officials organized a nationwide manhunt which focused on states in northern Mexico. According to a report, Sharon had become close to another inmate in prison who had been released. Therefore, the Mexican authorities assumed that when she escaped, she intended to meet up with this former inmate at their last at that person's last known address. Although law enforcement officials focused their search along the northern states, they didn't rule out the possibility that she would pass through any of the transport hubs throughout the country. Therefore, the manhunt also included searches of all the hubs eventually doubling back to Mexico City. Now, the Mexican government was also alerted the authorities in the U.S., which include the FBI, and they thought that Sharon would eventually try to return to America. However, at the time of her escape, the FBI stated that should that happen, they didn't have any jurisdiction to apprehend her for the murder charge in Mexico, for the escape in Mexico. So, at first, what the heck? I I just saw something flash by my face. I was like, well. Was it your life that it flashed before your eyes? <laughs> no, just something like a shadow passed right in front of my face. And there I was back in the f- woods and I was being chased by the Smithsonian Institute, but I was trying to hunt down a deer for dinner. Grr. I hate you. <laughs> Easy, Sasquatch. Easy. <laughs> Good girl. You're so bad. Start throwing snacks at you. <laughs> First, the authorities. <laughs> you better get Jack Links. Remember those commercials? 
Yeah, yes, it was Sasquatch. <laughs> At first, the authorities thought that Sharon had been able to bribe prison guards to turn a blind eye to her escape. And this theory was based on the fact that the prison had reported a strange electrical blackout around the same time that she'd made her escape. And an internal investigation determined that a door in the prison, which was normally locked, wasn't. When the prison administration staff and guards were questioned by the Mexican authorities, they revealed that there was an overall lax attitude when it came to how prisoners were guarded. In fact, the entire prison was being short-staffed during the time of Sharon's escape. Because it was staffed by midgets? No. Short-staffed? I got it. (laughs) Again, no need to mansplain your dumb jokes. You do know that mansplaining (laughs) means man-explaining. It's a little PSA for the day. <laughs> in addition to the above speculation from the authorities, there were also multiple theories about in the media. Those theories included she bribed prison officials to help her escape, she had a relationship with a police officer in Mexico City that helped her escape, her mother had orchestrated the escape, she found a former Secret Service agent with the Mexican government to help her, and she had escaped by disguising herself as a man to slip by the prison guards. However, one of the most recent theories states that she escaped with the help of Francisco's family, and once she was out of custody, the family then turned around and had her murdered. Now, according to reports, the Secret Service in Mexico and the DA's office is Mexico City officially stated they were no longer actively searching for the escapee. At the same time, the federal DA's office stated that it was up to the city's DA office to shoulder responsibility of the search efforts. Investigators who had been conducting the search efforts felt that there wasn't any reason for them to continue the manhunt because Sharon more than likely had already been able to cross the Mexican border into Guatemala. Um, That's false information. Why? Because they're on a woman hunt, (laughs) not a manhunt. Okay. Do they remember, they think that men helped her escape. Okay, that if they're looking for them, that's a manhunt. But they're looking for Sharon, so that's a woman hunt. Yes. And sometimes you got to look at a woman and say, "That's not a hunt. That begins with the letter C." And <laughs> we can't have those. We can't have that. <laughs> we can't hunt those. We can't. You, you can't hunt. Never mind. I'll leave that out because yeah. The C. The, we, 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 when it comes to the C word, women hate it. Yeah, most yeah. women do. I hate that word. Now, um, they say that after the time she had already spent incarcerated in Mexican prison, she had become fluent in the language. Therefore, she would be able to, quote, get along rather well in any Spanish-speaking region of the world. Even with this theory, they vowed in the press that they would continue to run their search efforts until they had Sharon back in custody. However, before the end of the year, they admitted that they had run out of leads as to where she could possibly have gone after breaking out of prison. After more than 50 years since Sharon had escaped from prison, she continues to remain on the run. In fact, nobody knows where she is or what ultimately became of her. Now, When Sharon was arrested and tried in Mexico for the murder of Francisco, it impacted her previous legal issues in Missouri, obviously. The day of her fourth trial for the death of James was supposed to start on October 26th. However, at the time, she was being held in a Mexican jail. As a result, the court revoked her bail of $25,000. Upon the bail revocation, the company that secured her bond, the United Bond Insurance Company, tried to argue that there were irregularities in the paperwork of Sharon's bond that would render it illegal. However, the court ultimately ordered the company to forfeit their expenses. Since Sharon was still in custody at the time, she was worried about the relinquishment of this bond and the implication it had against her monetarily. In fact, she told the reporters, I could always use the money. I don't intend to spend all my life in jail. (laughs) 
No. Uh, Nobody ever spends their whole life in jail for, oh, I don't know, murder. I know. Since the United Bond Insurance Company was disputing their payment of Sharon's original bail of 25000 with the courts, in August of 1965, a supersedious bond of $30,000 was issued. This is also referred to as a defendant's appeal bond. This is a bail bond that courts require from an appellant who wishes to delay the payment of an original judgment that is being appealed. That sounds appealing. Yeah, right? Because it's an appeal. I'm <laughs> explaining again to you. That way there you understand and so all the ladies understand. Because ladies, we all know that you need mansplaining. In the end, shut up. The Supreme Court of Missouri upheld the decision of the state to forfeit the original bond. Therefore, the state of Missouri was officially paid $25,000 in October of 1965. After Sharon's escape from Mexican prison, the United Bond Insurance Company filed a lawsuit against Sharon's family. They were hoping to recoup their losses, which included the original bond, any superseding attorney fees, and the cost of the company incurred when they helped search for Sharon after her escape. Well, it makes sense because seriously, back in that time there, twenty-five grand. that's a What's lot, a lot of, of money? money? Yeah. You know, and okay. Because some people were arguing, it's a lot of money now. It, it really isn't. Right. When, when you look at, even though we're in an economic downturn, twenty five grand is not a shit ton of money. Right. Um, you know, but back then, twenty five grand, I would, I'd venture to say that's probably close to half a million dollars now. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure. That would be my guess, just because yeah. of, you know, how economics inflation, work. Yeah. Inflation, everything like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a chunk of change, man. That's not. That's that was nothing, a chunk of change. Yeah, that's you. You normally can't go to a bank and say, "Give me a half a million dollars." Yeah, no, no, no. I've tried. They don't. They they frown upon that. They did. They need look to. at you and they go, "Huh?" <laughs> they said, "Sir, put that weapon away." I said, "What weapon? Your penis is hanging out." I said, "Oh, my bad. Okay, that's a weapon of mass affection. Just go, just go, sir. Just because you dressed it up like Frankenstein because you have a scar on it." Doesn't mean that we're going to give you money or I'm, let you trick or treat here anymore. I'm done. <laughs> or let you trick or treat here anymore. <laughs> You're so stupid. Get the little chocolate coins. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. I said, but Frankenstein is hungry. Wrong. No, sir, sir, that's not right. Okay. This is why we have bulletproof glass. It's also splash resistant. Quit playing with it. And they kicked me out. <laughs> Quit playing with it. <laughs> The guard thought it was funny, but I'll tell you what, that old lady behind the counter did not. <laughs> oh, my God. I told okay. her next time I said, I, I'm going to dress up like a missile. Oh, my God. You're so stupid. A heat-seeking moisture missile. You are so stupid. I'm so done with you. Caffeine's kicking. I'm feeling better. I know. So before Sharon was arrested in Mexico, while she was still waiting to go on trial for the death of her husband, her attorneys filed a change of venue motion with the courts. They argued that with all the media coverage on his death, their jury pool in Jackson County would already be prejudiced against her. And the only way for her to get a fair trial would be if they held the proceedings in a different county. Now, since Sharon was in jail in Mexico in October 1964, when her fourth trial was supposed to take place, a failure to appear warrant was issued for her arrest. As of October, 22nd, of October 2022, 58 years later, that warrant is still outstanding and it holds the record as the oldest outstanding murder warrant in Kansas City, Missouri. That's not the only record where Sharon's case is concerned. Her escape status 
in Mexico is also outstanding. However, in a twist, when she escaped from the Mexican prison in 1969, there weren't any laws in the country that would make breaking out of jail a crime. Therefore, if she's ever to be recaptured, she would only have to be required to serve out the remaining of her time on her original sentence. She wouldn't be given additional time. Jesus Christ. Right? Man. Now, <coughs> oh, I, I don't really need to get into that because they were talking about how um, she was basically... the There was some theories about her motivation for murdering her husband and the other people um now one person said that she uh unlike other murder cases sharon was able to get those who believed she was guilty of murder to like her some of her prosecutors described her as an attractive woman who had a certain appeal about her although they were convinced of her guilt they still found themselves liking her well um, here's the reason and then this actually this is not me just being right is because even to this day if mm-hmm. um, you know, men will put up with a lot of bullshit when it if, True. if 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 well, let's just call it spade a spade. If the pussy's good enough, and True. and you or you even think that you have a chance to get into a hot chick's pants, most guys will put up with a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, she's kind of a twat, and she's mean, and she's this, and she's that. But god dang, she's hot. I mean, look at her tits and look at her ass. Right, you know, because men are ruled by their penis. Me, not so much, believe it or not. I know it's a shocker, fans and listeners, but I'm not. I'm not because I just, if if a person's a twat, I just can't get into it. <laughs> and I have, you know, I have no problem getting very attractive women anyway. So, you know, I just, I, I tend to walk away a lot. Like, no. Toot, one. toot. Oh, wait, that was you tooting your own horn. Well, yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, yeah, because I, because I, honestly, I don't, I, I don't give a rat's ass. Yeah. Um. But most guys be like, man, but if I could only bang her or do this, nah, bullshit. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to. She's going to use and abuse you. And that's exactly what Sharon did. You know, yeah. she went and she said, look at me. I'm like, I'm pretty hot. I look like, yeah. a, I look like an actress. And guys are like, okay. Yeah. Like, you'll touch my pee pee? Okay. <laughs> okay. Life for you about murder? Okay. <laughs> Break you out of prison? Okay. Okay. <laughs> No, even uh, Colin Wilson wrote a book called The Mammoth Book of True Crime. And in his book, he describes her as a, quote, pretty criminal, which makes her a rarity in the justice system. No, and she's also a smooth criminal. They hear like this song, like the Michael Jackson song? Yeah. Are you okay? Who was it that didn't know that that was a Michael Jackson? Was it your son that didn't know that? No, it was me. I thought it was, I seriously thought it was done by Alien Ant Farm. That's the only version I've ever heard. No, it was Michael Jackson. And Jake said that, and I know a shit ton about music. I know you do. So when he said that, I'm like, um, sorry, sir, you are wrong. He goes, oh, yeah? And he pulled it up. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I got taught a lesson on music of all things. By your son. By my son. Yeah, no. But yeah, so, you know, so that's the Sharon Kine story. She didn't sound very kind at all. She didn't sound very kind. No, but she was kind of weird. <laughs> she was kind of weird. I will agree with kinda, that. Kinda, it was kind of a bizarre story because, you know, there was so much. I mean, four trials for the murder of one person. Hello. <laughs> no kidding, man. Damn. It's not like he was, I don't know, me or something. Uh, you know what? It would take four trials because each person that murdered you, each person that would be, you know, accused of murdering you would have to go on trial to be acquitted because I'm pretty sure there's about 10 people right off the bat I can name. Probably. Probably. <laughs> I'm one. I'm number one. Well, here's the thing. Like, it, it, Seriously, like, either people love me to death or they hate my guts. There's no in between. Uh, yeah, or there's those of us who love to hate you. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm okay with it either way. <laughs> All so, right. Remember to check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Uh, check out the website at www.twistedbluellc.com. You can send us an email, all that good crap. This show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. I suppose we'll see you guys tomorrow, unless you want to see me. Tonight? No, no. Well, if we were releasing this earlier, I'd tell everybody to come out to the CD uh, release party tonight. Oh, that's true. That's true. But yeah. I got the notification now. Uh, the album, which is just self-titled uh, Twisted Blue, uh, is on Spotify. I got the notification for that. We're on iTunes. I'm pretty sure that the distributor the distributor, has us on all major platforms across the board. I think so, Pandora. too. It should be up and running. So check out the album, man. So. The show's copyright 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you glorious boys and girls later. And remember, if you're cute, send me a message because we might be able to work out a deal. Chihuahua. Don't do it, people. Don't. That's He's a man whore. I am not. I'm sweet and innocent. Man whore. What? Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.